Hello, hello, and welcome back to Geotalks. Today I'm going to be talking about three of my very favorite um, short stories. One, let's see, we've got The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman or Stetson. Um, we have The Tale to Heart by Edgar Allan Poe and The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. Um, if you've read these, then awesome, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't read these, they are all available online. Um, downloadable PDFs and all that um, and uh, also maybe you'll learn some things and maybe you'll you'll even if you have read them before and discussed them before maybe you'll gain a different perspective um, but yeah so I'm hoping this is a start of a series in which I do once a month I'll discuss three different short stories that um, have shaped me as a person and as a writer and a reader and yeah so I hope you stick around and I hope you enjoy this conversation that I have with you and myself out loud in this very quiet house. Huh. Anyway, stand by for new music I'm trying out. Well, that was creepy enough, I think. Um, but yes, so today I, you're probably gonna hear a lot of rustling where I'm going back and forth between my my copies um, and my book. So The Telltale Heart was first published in 1843. Uh, the Yellow Wallpaper was published in 1892 and The Lottery was first published in 1948. And these are all, you know, gothic, horror, dystopian, just frightening stories. And they're frightening in the sense that they have to do with sort of like a psychosis. Each one is a different type of psychosis. So in The Telltale Heart, you know, we have this narrator who says he has this nervous condition that, you know, he can hear everything. And that was his folly. That was his fall was that he had a heightened sense of hearing that he could hear any and all things that other people couldn't hear and that it slowly drove him mad. Now, I grew up with a lot of uh, ear issues. Like I had a lot of ear infections as a kid. My eardrums ruptured a bunch of times. There's periods of my life where I recall not being able to hear very well or at all. Um, as I grew up and my ears changed, I guess, um, like the shape of it in my head, I don't really know the science behind it. I never bothered to look it up. I just know that since the day that I was able to hear clearly, I have been able to hear everything, like everything. Like I can hear the electricity in the walls, which I have learned is an ADAD, ADHD slash autism thing, which, you know, it's good to know I'm not alone, but I can hear electricity in the walls. I can hear um, just when like a light bulb is going out and I can hear the clicking sound, it drives me crazy, um, like the fluorescent ones and stuff. I can hear a lot of things. I can hear more, I can hear deeper than most people, I should say, or yeah. So there's this running joke that I have like supersonic hearing. Um, I used to freak out my students when I was teaching at the university, they'd be in the back row and I'd be writing on the board and I'd hear somebody say something and it was about me 
Uh, I remember one class period, it was about my tattoos. Somebody said something about liking my tattoos and I was discussing something else as I was writing on the board. And then I turned and I said, thanks, my tattoo artist is out of Edinburgh. I can give you his information at the end of class if you'd like. And they just kind of sat there and stared at me. And I was like, yeah, I hear everything. When I was a server, I could be in a Bev station watching my tables and I would focus, highly focus on my tables and I could hear them say like, oh, I forgot to ask for a refill or, oh, I should have asked for this drink instead of this one. And I would show up with said drink and they would just look at me and I'm like, oh, I heard you. And it's it's creepy, right? <laughs> but I'm used to it, so whatever, right? Anyway, back to Telltale Heart. I When I first read this as a kid, I, I was scared, but like the same way that I was scared when I first heard The Raven being read by um, uh, James Earl Jones on The Simpsons, which also The Telltale Heart is referenced in The Simpsons. There's this episode called Lisa's Rival. Um, it's an episode with uh, Winona Ryder, I believe. She was the um, the guest speaker or the guest, uh, uh, ah, the guest voice. Sorry, I'm a little excited. I'm all over the place. She was the guest voice, and um, she's a year younger than Lisa, and Lisa feels threatened by her, and she, her name is Allison, and so she, Lisa ends up stealing her diorama with, and swapping it out with, um, with a cow's heart, because actually her di- uh, Allison's diorama had to do with the telltale heart. There's even like a little scene of like the floorboard, she used an old metronome to make it click, make the beating of the heart. And um, there's this great moment where Lisa can hear it beating and, you know, uh, Skinner is getting mad at Allison, reprimanding Allison for bringing in a heart, like an actual cow's heart to the diorama. And he's like, maybe skipping you a grade was uh, was a mistake and, you know, all this stuff. And Lisa freaks out and she's like, ah, it's the beating of that hideous heart. And everyone turns and looks at her. She just stands there. She's like. I mean, I think I hear something. And she opens the floor of the gym and she pulls out the diorama and she's like, here's Allison's diorama. It got misplaced or so it would seem, right? And um, I I loved it. I loved that as a kid because I had read The Telltale Heart and it creeped me out and I loved the way The Simpsons did it. You know, they put their own spin on it. It was Lisa's like guilty conscious, which is again in The Telltale Heart, that's the problem, right? So he has, the narrator has this, nervous condition what he calls a nervous condition that's how it starts true nervous very very dreadfully nervous i had been an m but they will say that i am mad the disease had sharpened my senses not destroyed not dulled above all was a sense of hearing acute i heard all things in the heaven and in the earth i heard many things in hell how then am i mad hearken and observe how healthily how calmly i can tell you the whole story so this is the beginning of his confession to the detectives that show up at the house because somebody heard a scream right and this is after he has dismembered the body of the man that he was caretaking right because of his eyes so not only is he going sort of insane or is he mad because he can hear everything and because he has his nervous condition but it was exacerbated by the the man's eye his vulture eye right and it it just it's just so great on so many levels because this story starts off with him just kind of it's it's his confession 
You know, like nobody's asked him if he did it. Nobody's looking for a motive. He has no other motive other than that I is evil and he can't handle it. He likes the man well enough, but he can't handle that I. And in order to get rid of the I, he has to get rid of the man. And then his acute hearing is what gives him away, right? His nervous condition and all that fun stuff. So it's great. I love it. I love this story. It's super creepy. Every time I read it, like I read it before I started this, this recording today and I feel the sense of like building uh, anticipation and just like anxiety. Like I can, I can feel him getting upset more and more upset as it goes, as the story goes on because he's proud of himself and how smart he is and how stealthy he was and all that. But toward the end, he starts freaking out because, you know, um, they can't hear the beating of the heart, but he can hear it because he's standing right above it. He's sitting right above it. And, um, yeah, and that's how it ends. That's his, his line is, Villains, I shriek. Disassemble no more. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. And I just love it. It's great. It's fantastic because he just gives himself up. Like, he 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 murdered this man just for the, the sole purpose, the sole intent to stop that eye from seeing him, that vicious evil eye from x-raying him from examining him which the way it's described it was probably just a blind like dead eye but he was just so neurotic and just it's so deep in the psychosis that it took him seven days to fully decide that he was going to murder this man and he did it on the eighth day and only because the man was still awake uh he woke up he hears a noise in the dark and he's scared and you know it's this whole thing so if you haven't read any of these stories sorry probably should have started with spoiler alert i'm going to discuss them um but anyway that's a really really great one um the next one that i want to talk about is the yellow wallpaper i am going kind of rapid fire in these just because um i don't want to get too absorbed in in discussing them and then just kind of like talk for two hours um so i'm going to try to keep this short. Um, I learned last week that 30 minute intervals work best for the platform that I'm using. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to do that. But anyway, the yellow wall wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, um, was published in 1982. And it is, it is a great representation of postpartum depression and hysteria and just, you know, overcoming the patriarchy through self-liberation and the way she liberates herself is a little morbid and it's it's kind of left like if you look up you know the ending of the yellow wallpaper like what happened to Janie what happened to Jane some people feel she hung herself other people feel she just kind of had a mental breakdown and is just completely lost to the person she was before and just kind of sort of crawling around the room. I think because of the mention of the rope that she had hidden and that she wore around her body that she hung herself. Um, and that, uh, while she was dying, her husband walks in and sees her, you know, sees the, disarray of the room that they stayed in the room that she kept telling him she was uncomfortable in the room that he kept telling her she had to stay in because he was the physician he was the man and he knew better um and the isolation that she was pushed into due to her own nervous condition um 
you know, this house out in the country that they were renting for three months, her husband being gone to the city during the day, sometimes overnight, seeing his patients, um, her being left alone and constantly told not to write, not to read, not to clean, not to do anything other than rest and be in quiet, be in solitude, was the worst thing that anyone could have done to her and that could have been pushed upon her. When she There's instances where she's asking her husband if it's possible for them to have friends over, you know, to go and for her to go visit family for a week. And he tells her no, because that's too much stimulation and that he's the doctor and he knows what's right and she needs to stay there and, you know, be quiet and just rest and not do anything. And it's all of this, like he doesn't, she even writes that he does not like to see her writing because that is too much. Like he, let me see. Um, <clears throat> I, I reread these and I annotated all of them. Well, except for the Telltale Heart, I'm not writing this, but I annotated, um, my my notes last night and um, my boyfriend was was kind of mocking me mocking me in a fun way he's like oh you're so nerdy i love it um but anyway so she said there's a moment here where it says john is her husband john is a physician and perhaps i would not say this to a living soul of course but this is dead paper and a great relief to mind perhaps that is one reason i do not get well faster you see he does not believe i'm sick and what can one do? If a physician of high standing and and one's own husband assures friends and relatives that there is really nothing the matter with one but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency, what is one to do? My brother is also a physician and also of high standing, and he says the same thing. So, and then she goes on to say, I did write for a while in spite of them, but it does exhaust me a good deal, having to be so sly about it or else meet with, met, or else meet with heavy opposition. I sometimes fancy that in my condition, if I had less opposition and more society and stimulus, but John says the very worst thing I can do is think about my condition, and I confess it always makes me feel bad. So I will let it alone and talk about the house. So she can't even write about how she's feeling because she's told not to she's she's made to feel a certain way about expressing herself because her opinion her feelings her thoughts don't matter because the men in her life of high standing and higher education are telling her this is what's wrong with you and this is what you need to do so in the room that she is staying in it's at the very top of the house because he, John, refused to let her stay on the lower floors where there was more interaction with people coming and going, where it was easier for her to walk out of the house and into the garden. He said that wasn't good enough for her. She needed air. She needed rest and she needed air. So he put her at the top of the house with this room that like had floor-to-ceiling windows and all around so that when they were open, she could get all the air she needed. But there is this disgusting, horrible nasty ass yellow wallpaper in this room that she does not like and the more she looks at it the more lost she gets in it you know like you know how when sometimes you're you're just kind of like there's a moment here where she says I used to lie awake as a child and get more entertainment and terror out of blank walls and plain furniture than most children could find in a toy store as someone who grew up with popcorn ceilings and just you know 
very low income, um, no cable, no like what, like no summer camps, none of that stuff, no daycare, even lying on my bed with my head hanging off the edge of the bed and looking up at the ceiling at the popcorn ceiling with the glitter in it. I saw so many things, you know, like I would just listen to music well into my teenage years, listen to music, have it blasting while just staring at the ceiling and just looking at the different shapes that I could see in there. And that's what she's doing with this wallpaper, right? Because that's her only outlet. Sure, she can walk the grounds and she can go check out the gardens and all that stuff, but she's alone every time she does it. She is suffocating in her isolation and she's starting to hallucinate. She can't sleep at night because there are faces and things that are moving behind the wallpaper um, that there's bars on this wind on these windows, right? She, she feels it was a nursery at some point and then a playroom because there's bars on it to keep in the little children, but it's also keeping her in. And at night when the moon shines through all these windows, the bars are reflected on the wallpaper. So the things inside the wallpaper are moving around trying to escape, but they can't because of the bars right? And because they're just stuck there. So she eventually begins to see a woman or many women behind the wallpaper. And it's, it's, it reflects how she's feeling, right? She's feeling trapped. She is trapped. She, her husband doesn't listen to her. Anytime she tries to talk to him about how she's feeling, he gaslights her and tells her that he knows better than she does about her condition. And If she starts crying, he just, you know, tells her, see, you need to rest. You're thinking about this too much. I know what I'm telling you. You need to do this for me. You need to do this for our children. You need to do this for yourself. You need to rest. You need to get better. And then we can think about leaving this house. And then we can think about going on vacation or going, you know, having a party or whatever, right? This story, or I mean, like this in the story, they are there for three months. And in these three months, her condition deteriorates to the point where um, she is so just, you know, here, look, there's a moment. Let me see. Dear John, he loves me very dearly and hates to have me sick. I tried to have a real, earnest, reasonable talk with him the other day and tell him how I wish he would let me go and make a visit to cousin Henry and Julia. But he said I wasn't able to go, nor able to stand it after I got there, and I did not make out a very good case for myself, for I was crying more, crying before I had finished. So because she, because, you know, becomes hysterical and just like is overly emotional, where she's trying to convey how she's feeling, her husband takes it as, you know, a way of showing her like, see, you're not fit to do much. You need to rest. You need to keep resting. And it's she says that you know it's it's getting to be a great effort for me to think straight just a nervous weakness I suppose so because she's being isolated and being told that what she's feeling isn't valid and that he knows better than she does and her brother knows better than she does she's just sort of allowing herself to be absorbed into the thought of being trapped or the woman trapped behind this wallpaper she begins to see her creeping and crawling throughout the day from those windows along the path, along the, you know, in the garden, staying hidden under clouds. And she doesn't want that to become her, but in a way it is because that's what she's doing. She's creeping around. She's making up excuses to stay in her room. She's 
she's being made to stay in her room longer and longer by herself, like an hour after each meal, like stuff like that. <clears throat> so she's so just alone and isolated and left to her own nervous condition, her own nervous thoughts, that she begins to make a plan to release the woman that's hiding behind or the women that's hiding that are hiding behind this wallpaper. And so on the last night that they're there, the last day, she locks the door to the bedroom. She all the furniture has been moved back downstairs and it's just a bed that's nailed to the floor. And that's really where she has the only spot that she can't get rid of the, the wallpaper because she can't reach all of it. And just whatever height she can't reach, you know, like up to a certain part, she shredded all the wallpaper off the wall in an effort to capture the woman hidden behind the wallpaper. That's why she has the rope, but the rope is tied around her and she won't jump out the window. There's a moment where it says here, um, okay. So she says, I'm getting angry enough to do something desperate. To jump out of the window would be an admirable exercise, but the bars are too strong even to try. Besides, I wouldn't do it. Of course not. I know well enough that a step like this is improper and might be misconstrued. Because in her mind, she's not trying to commit suicide. In her mind, she's trying to release the, the caged woman in this room. But she is the caged woman in this room. So by the time her husband gets the door open, like he, you know, she, th she locks it. She tosses the key out to the front path and he's trying to get in. She can't, she, you know, she can't open the door and she's just roaming or creeping along the room. Um, when he finally does get in, it ends with, what's the matter? He cried, for God's sake, what are you doing? I kept on creeping just the same, but I looked at him over my shoulder. I've got out at last, I said, in spite of you and Jane, and I pulled off most of the paper so you can't put me back. Now why should the man have fainted? But he did, and right across my path by the wall so that I had to creep over him every time. So the woman's name is Jane. The woman that is writing this is Jane. But at the end, she refers to herself as you and Jane. Right. So the idea, the way I interpret it is that her psychosis, like her, she finally broke so much that she became the woman behind the wallpaper. So when she hung herself, that was her last thought was that she was freeing the woman. She became the woman that was in the wallpaper, if that makes sense. But she was, in essence, just the caged woman in the room because of the men in her life that told her that that's what needed to be done right? That's what she needed to do. She needed to stay there. She needed to listen. She needed to just not lift a finger not think, not write, not express herself in any way because of her nervous condition. And so she just like, she checked out and her husband could not handle the, the fight and he passed away or not passed away. I'm sorry. He passed out. How dramatic. So in the lottery by Shirley Jackson, um, this one, what I love about this one is that it was first published, um, in, uh, uh, June 18th, 1948, right? And the story takes place, it begins on the morning of June 27th. So 
Miss Shirley Jackson knew what she was doing, and I think that's incredible because of course she did. Of course she did. This is this is amazing. So if you've read The Hunger Games or like last night, my after I read this to my boyfriend, he had me watch an episode of South Park uh, with Britney Spears. Um, and it was terrible. It was horrible. Poor Brittany. But then toward the end, I understood why he made me watch this. And he's like, when you were reading that to me, it all of a sudden all just made more sense. And I was like, oh, oh, holy crap. Right. So <laughs> the way this is OK, so the characters in this, like everything is just like Shirley Jackson is just so incredible. What's so incredible with her writing? So it takes place on a full summer day. So this is just the first paragraph. The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely. The grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square between the post office and the bank around 10 o'clock. In some towns, there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 26th. But in this village, where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery only took about two hours. So it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. So the way she starts this, you know, there's just a beautiful summer day, right? Everybody's got something going on, so they got to get the thing done so they can just go back to life as usual, right? The man that runs this, the man that is in charge of the lottery, his name is Mr. Summer, right? Like that's Mr. Summers, that's his last name. The man that helps him is Mr. Graves. Like there's just all these little things um, that the more you read it, the more you pick up on. And there's this one character, Old Man Warner. He was the oldest man in town. Um, he has been part of the lottery. He has participated in the lottery for 77 years. So this town has is at least that old, right? If he's the oldest man in town, it's it's gone on longer than 77 years, but he's the oldest man in town, so he's the only OG left, I guess, one of the OGs left, right? They don't really know when all this started. They just know that when the town was founded, this is this is how it began, right? Like this is how it was done. So the original paraphernalia for the lottery had been lost long ago and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man Warner, the oldest man in town, was born. Um, so there's a black box that holds things, you know, and it says there was a story that the present box had been made with some pieces of the box that preceded it, the one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here. Every year after the lottery, Mr. Summers began talking again about a new box, but every year the subject was allowed to fade off without any things being done. The black box grew shabbier each year. By now it was no longer completely black, but splintered badly along one side to show the original wood color in some places faded or stained. So that's how long this box has been in use. And even then it was created by pieces of the old box. So there's really no knowing. It's at least 77 years that this town has been doing it, the very least, because that's how old Mr. Warner is. So the whole point of this is a ritual, right? Mr. Warner says, there used to be a saying let me find it before I butcher it. I read it yesterday as part of my promo. Um, -da -da -da. Uh, 
can't find it. There's always been a lottery, he said. Okay. Lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. Right? So I can't, I don't know the name of the episode that I watched last night of South Park, but essentially what it is, is uh, Britney Spears, they're hounding her, you know, this was, it took place in 2008. I know that much because a lot of it also reminded me of, um, of uh, Hot Fuzz with like the way they were singing. Um, but anyway, because there's no singing in this, but um, it was, it was the lottery. So basically... Britney Spears was chosen to be a ritual sacrifice. Um, she had to die in order for the crops to grow, right? So that's why they raised her up from childhood to be, or like at least a teenager, to be this, you know, um, character, this person that everyone looked up to, that admired, that she was admired, she was loved and whatnot. And then when it was time for her to not be around anymore, that's when they started hounding her more and taking her photos and stuff. So like toward the end of the episode, the boys are trying to save her life. Um, they don't understand what's going on. The whole town shows up and you get a Mr. Warner, you get a Bill, who's Bill Summers, I believe. No, Bill Hutchinson and Joe Summers. Those are characters in here in the story. You get all these people, these characters. You get straight up, like, I think, uh, Warner, Mr. Warner in the episode said something like, um lottery in March, something about cornstarch or something like that. Like it's basically lottery in June, you know, corn be heavy soon. And then after she dies, um, they just show like everybody just turns around and walks away and they have corn, right? They have like, everybody's happy. Like they have a surplus of corn. Then everyone's just going on with their day because their sacrifice was taken, right? Like it was accepted and they were, they, they reaped the benefits of that sacrifice. So in this one, it ends with the stoning of Mrs. Hutchinson. She loses the lottery, right? Or wins the lottery. However, she sees it as a loss. Everyone else that wasn't, you know, that didn't get the little black dot on that piece of paper sees it as a win. And that's what they do. You know, they, Let's see, where is it? Um... <clears throat> Although the villagers had forgotten the ritual, the ritual and lost the original black box, they still remembered to use stones. The pile of the stone, the pile of stones the boys had made earlier was ready. There were stones on the ground with the blowing scraps of paper that had come out of the box. Mrs. Delacroix selected a stone so large she had picked it. She had to pick it up with both hands and turned to Mrs. Dunbar. Come on, she said, hurry up. Mrs. Dunbar had small stones in both hands as she said, gasping for breath. I can't run at all. You'll have to go ahead and I'll catch up with you. Which was also referenced in the South Park episode. Uh, the children had stones already and someone gave little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles. Davy Hutchinson is Mrs. Tessie Hutchinson's youngest son. He also made an appearance in the South Park episode I watched last night. Um, and except in South Park episode, it wasn't stones. It was cameras. They were taking photos of her. Um, so they hand him a little camera and they're like, here you go, Davey. So this child is given stones in the, in, the, in the story, is given stones to throw at his mother, to cast at his mother, to stone her to death, to help bring in the season, the good season for crops, right? 
Tessie Hutchinson was in the center of a cleared space by now, and she held her hands out desperately as the villagers moved in on her. It isn't fair, she said. A stone hit her on the side of the head. Old man Warner, old man Warner said, Come on, come on, everyone. Steve Adams was in the front of the crowd of villagers with Mr. Gra Mrs. Graves beside him. It isn't fair. It isn't right, Mrs. Hutchinson screamed, and then they were upon her. So... Before all of this, when she first starts protesting, because I guess the idea is that in the past, there wasn't any protest. But I think what makes it interesting, the fact that she's protesting now, is that they mentioned that other villages have stopped doing the lottery. So old man mourners, like, that's dumb, you know, like, that's just dumb. Like, there's always been a lottery. There should always be a lottery because I've had to do it for 77 years. I've survived it. Y'all can do it. Like, you know. So, I mean, if he's the last surviving man, the last surviving, the oldest person in town, presumably once he's gone, it'll be easier to maybe phase out the lottery or stop it altogether, especially if other villages are doing it as well. Um, but old man Warner says at some point, people aren't the same. People ain't the way they used to be. He says, um, yeah, he says, he's like, it's not the way it used to be. Old man Warner said clearly, people ain't the way they used to be. So when before it was probably as most sacrifices, you know, throughout history, sacri like ritual sacrifices like this throughout history, usually when it's first begun, the idea is that it's understood as sort of like something that you're doing for the benefit of your community, you know, something to look, not necessarily look forward to, but accept in a way as this is what's expected of me. I'm going to do my due diligence, my duty to get through this, right? To, to, to bring forth, you know, a good crop for my, for my family and for my town. I'm sure, right, is how, well, at least that's how we're taught, right? That's that's what we're told about ritual sacrifices like this, that more than likely this is how they understood it. This is how they accepted it. But as people grow, as populations grow, and as people think and analyze and you introduce, you know, like different ideas, different religions, different um, thought processes, Things like ritual sacrifice become a little, you know, out there, right? And so you you kind of begin as a society to move away from that to find other means to support your growing society. So that's what's happening here in that other towns have given up or other villages have given up the lottery, right? This is one town that's still holding on to it. Excuse me. The reason I love this so much is also, you know, a precursor for most dystopian novels. Um, I've never read it, but The Hunger Games comes to mind. I've watched all those movies. It's interesting. The only reason, this has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but the only reason I ever watched The Hunger Games movies was because various men that I dated were really into Jennifer Lawrence and they wanted to watch it. So I was like, yeah, all right, let's go watch it. But I'm not a big fan of The Hunger Games movies. Um... The first movie was just trippy with its cinematography. Like, I wasn't sure when it was a flashback or what. Like, it just... Anyway. Anyway. Um, um, the Simpsons makes mention of the lottery, but just, like, offhand. 
And um, it's basically, it's actually on an episode where they're obsessed with, like, the actual, like, money lottery, right? Not not a death lottery thing. <laughs> but anyway, why is all this important and why do I want to talk about it? Well, as someone who's who read these, like, I didn't read the lottery and the yellow wallpaper until college, I believe. Maybe Maybe the lottery was in high school. I think the lottery was in high school. The yellow wallpaper was my liter- one of my literature classes in college, and um, it's always been one of my favorites. They all have, um, just because they're so creepy, and just because it shows you how, or at least me, it showed me how when we're writing a story, when we're crafting a story, we can go into the thought process of a, of a narrator, of a protagonist, but then we can also pull out and see how everyone else is reacting around it. So if you read the yellow wallpaper, the the more into her psychosis that Janie, the, the protagonist or the narrator gets, gets, the deeper in she gets into it, the more she begins to suspect her servant and her husband as understanding that there's something different about the wallpaper. And then and as she begins to accuse them quietly to herself in her journal not out loud to them because she doesn't want to come off as crazy. She doesn't want them to um, suspect anything from her She because she wants to be left alone in that room for longer and longer periods so that she can get to the woman behind the paper. Um, she begins to suspect that they are being affected by the paper as well and that they're trying to be the ones, they want to be the ones to release the woman that's trapped behind it. But she wants to be the one to do it. So she keeps you know trying to find ways to be alone, right? In the lottery, we we get that, like, when you first read this, you, you, you see Mrs. Hutchinson kind of joking, you know, like, she's very lighthearted about everything. She's, you know, she forgot what day it was. She was at home washing dishes, and she thought her husband was out, you know, chopping wood, and then she looked up and realized the kids were gone, and she realized what day it was, and then she ran. So she was late showing up to begin with. So... She's kind of not really committed to the idea of this. She's just going through the motions of it and just kind of making jokes about it until it becomes very real. And then she's like, no, nah, it's not fair. Like she even there's a moment where she even throws her oldest daughter who's married to an, into another family and draws with her husband and his family. She throws her into it like, oh, no, we claim them too. like let them have their chance, you know, and it's like, no, that's that's not how it works. Um, so it's kind of like one of those things for, for me reading it with Tessie Hutchinson, it was like, to her, it's something that could happen to someone else. And when it does happen to someone else, it's kind of like, oh, well, too bad, so sad. That's kind of what happens. Let's move on with the day, which is how it is with every other villager. When they realize that it's not them, when they realize it's Tessie, they tell her, be a good sport, just do it, just go through with it. Like, you know, that's enough, like whatever. And they stone her to death. And then they have enough time to just go back and have lunch and then go on with their day, go on with the rest of their lives until the following summer that they do this again, if they do it again, right? And it's just so, to me, it was just really like, whoa, you know, like you just murdered someone in your town by stoning them to death while they pled for you not to. And you did it anyway. You gave pebbles to her young son so that he could get used to doing this, so that he could have a hand in murdering his mother, so that 
crops could be sown. It, it just, it was just mind boggling to me. Just like how uh, the different perspectives in psychology when it comes to the psychology of the characters, right? And then with the Telltale Heart, the way it all begins with a nervous condition, right? Just like um, the yellow wallpaper, it's a nervous condition. So it's some sort of already heightened sense of disquiet within oneself that is just expanded on and whatever conditions around you, like you're, you're, you know, you're, you're alone, like in the narrator in um, the Telltale Heart, he's alone. He's a caretaker for this old man. And yeah, this old man has gold and he's got all this stuff, but all he does is take care of him. So he's, he's, it's presumed that the way he talks about him that's all he does is interacts with this man. He lives there. He takes care of him every day, all day. So he's isolated and just with this man with this eye that is freaking him out on top of like his nervous condition and his acute hearing and, you know, his guilty conscience and, you know, all this stuff. Like just how, for me, what was fascinating was how deeply you can get involved in these characters in such a short time frame, right? Like, the Telltale Heart is one, two, three, four pages long, right, in this book that I have. And it's small font and whatever, right? It's just a traditional book. The The Lottery <clears throat> was first published in The New Yorker. So it's a short story, which it caused such a stir. A lot of people did not like it. A lot of people wrote in wanting to, like, just, oh, it was so great. If you look it up, like, look up, like, the controversy of The Lottery I mean, it was 1948, right? But still, it is fantastic. Shirley Jackson is just Shirley Jackson, just one of the OGs. Like, she's a goat. I love her. Anyway, this one is because of the font and whatnot. It's it's about like 10 pages long, but it's huge font. It's maybe like 14 font, right? So like, it's probably like five pages long, if anything. And the yellow wallpaper, the same. Like, it's, it's not that long. And these are short stories that provide you a beginning middle end that shows you the thought process of so many different characters and just like the the consciousness of so many different characters that when I read these I was like I want to do this like how is this done novel writing is one thing you have you know time to develop your characters throughout your novel if um you know if it works for you, if it works it works if it doesn't you can kill off that character bring in someone else or morph them you know through various drafts which is you know the same way with writing shorts right you, you morph different drafts different drafts different edits all that stuff but at the heart of it you only have a few central characters and you have a finite time to have a beginning middle end right and when my thesis is all short stories. It's a collection of five short stories. And I remember one of the critiques I got um, at my defense was, I don't really like that this story doesn't end with a happy ending, right? That's what, what my chair said to me. Like a lot of your stories don't end, or your stories don't end with happy endings. They're all very ambiguous. And I said, yes. And he just kind of looked at me and I was like, yeah, that's how I want to write the story. That's how I want to end the story. Um, my work, I've said before, I don't know if I mentioned it here, I wrote a fantasy memoir, right? So it was things that were actually happening to me mixed up with the fantasy because of 
my mental health at the time or my mental state at the time. I was on, um, I was an insomniac for one. So I was already hallucinating due to lack of sleep. And then, um, I was on a preventative treatment for my migraines. I was taking zonizamide, which in low doses, which is a, um, an anti-seizure medication. I don't have seizures, but, um, it's been shown to show improvement on preventing migraines in low doses, doses, dosages. I'm trying to say both words at the same time. So I was on that, but that caused me to hallucinate. That caused me brain fog. That caused me um, just, uh, I would be in the middle of speaking. And in, in my mind, the way words come out of my mind, I see them before I say them. Um, usually not fast enough to stop myself from saying it, <laughs> but I do see them. And it's kind of like this little machine that's just pushing out like note cards with words that I'm going to say. And it's just constantly doing that. It'll go faster, it'll go slower, but it's that's what it's doing. And when I was on this medication, there'd be moments where I'd be in the middle of a conversation and then I would just have to stop. I would just be like, like I would make that sound because I physically, my brain could not show me what the next word was. It was like somebody just reached in and pulled out the word halfway through my sentence. And then like the whole thought gets derailed and I have no idea what I'm talking about. And I would just kind of stand there like, yeah, maybe if I remember I can finish that, but I have no idea what I was just saying. And it was a really difficult time for me, really, really difficult time. And I got through it by writing about it. And, um, you know, by talking to my friends about it and my professors and all that stuff. So my stories did not end with happy endings. They ended with, you know, what I like to think of as hopeful endings, um, ambiguous endings, you know, but that was just my reality at the time. And that's what I love about the short story is that you can convey hope, you can convey fear, you can convey um, anger and just solitude and just sadness or joy or, you know, whatever emotion in five to seven pages, right? Longer short stories about 12 to 15, but usually it's five to seven pages. And I just, I love that. I loved, I love the, like the, what's the word? I can't think of the word, um, but I just, I just love how uh, malleable, I guess, short stories are. You can have like a small concept that you want to expand on, but you know that you can't do a full length thing because the the point, the heart of your story may be lost if you do a long form novel. I remember reading um, The Lost Boys by, is it Orson Scott Card? Hang on. Okay, I had to look it up. Um, it is Lost Boys by Orson Scott Card. So I read it um, as a kid. I probably shouldn't have been reading it. But um, I thought it was like the movie The Lost Boys. Because um, I thought I had read somewhere that it was based off of that. So I was like, oh, okay, well then I'll read the book. Um, so Lost Boys by Orson Scott Card started off as a short story that was then turned into a longer form novel. And I never read the short story, I just read the novel, but there were portions of it where, but it's not about vampires, by the way, it's just a very, very sad, like, story about little boys that are, that have gone missing in the neighborhood, if I remember correctly, and it, they, it's, it's just terrible, it's just a really, really sad story, um, and I, I, do, I don't really want to talk about it, but I will say that I, 
remember thinking like I think this probably was better as a short story because there are moments where in the novel it just kind of drags on and maybe if I read it again uh, now as an adult and not a child it'll make more sense but because like reading the reviews some people are like oh I've read this three times and I love it even more and I notice these different things every time that I read them which is what comes with you know the, the older you get the more you learn how to read critically and whatnot even when you're reading for fun but it is not a story that I want to revisit, right? And um, I just remember thinking that as a kid, like, this was probably better as a short story. And I was also confused because it had nothing to do with vampires. So that's when I was like, wait, okay, this isn't right. But I read it anyway, and I was like, oh, okay, you know? Um, so sh to me, short stories are one of the hardest things you can do but also most rewarding because you have to be able to tell a quick story. You have to hook your audience. You have to make them want to continue to read what you've written and experience this, this adventure or this, you know, fear or, you know, this nervous condition with your protagonists, with your narrators. And you want them to care. Your reader has to care. Your reader has to see themselves or portions of themselves in it enough to where they'll commit to three, four, five, seven pages, right? And it's it's one of those things where if it's done well, then awesome. You can have a whole collection. Stephen King has a bunch of collections of short stories and I own a lot of those, um, big surprise. But if it's not done well, or if it does well and then you decide to try to turn it into something longer, sometimes it doesn't really work out, right? And I just, I love that. I love how short stories can go from, you know, seven pages, 12 pages, 15 pages to also uh, micro shorts or like three words, three sentence stories, right? Or six word stories. And it's enough to, to get you to want more and to actually like make you feel something or think critically about something. And it's, it's incredible. And I, I love short stories. I love reading short stories uh, as well as novels. And yeah, I just really want to talk about these and how, you know, the creepiness of it, the the difference in, you know, like in, in the lottery, it takes place on a beautiful summer day. And the fact that it was, so it takes place on the morning of June 27th and it was really, it was published um, on June 18th, like, I just love that. I love the way that was planned. Like, I I love the, the use of, like, darkness in Edgar Allan Poe and how, or, or sorry, in um in The Telltale Heart and how in, in also in The Yellow Wallpaper where the, the environment becomes a tangible thing that begins to affect the narrator. Like, there, we've all, I think, would assume, we've all had moments when we've been sick, like, had a really high fever, or we've just been throwing up forever, or we haven't been able to sleep, like we have transient insomnia or something, and we begin to feel like the environment around us, like the darkness is too close to us maybe, or it's too bright and it hurts like our eyes if we have a headache or a migraine, um, you know, like if we're just horrendously hungover and we, every smell is, is just like, oh God, like when I was pregnant, good Lord, I could not smell toothpaste and not want to vomit for the whole first month of my pregnancy like toothpaste I couldn't I, I couldn't smell it on people's breath I couldn't be in the same room with it without having a physical visceral reaction to the smell 
of toothpaste. It was so offending. Like I just could not handle the smell of fluoride throughout my entire pregnancy. I had to change my toothpaste and use kids toothpaste because it had less fluoride and that smell wasn't there. And just the other night, I used to be able to eat bell pepper. Um, bell pepper was my main food aversion when I was pregnant. And I found that out in harsh fashion. And still to this day, I cannot bring myself to eat bell pepper. And the other night, my boyfriend had made dinner for us like he does most nights, all every night. And he made vegetables like always. And he eats peppers. And I've gotten used to like the slight flavor of it because he'll make the, the vegetables together and then sort out the peppers, right? Which is fine. I've gotten, I, I want to eat peppers again, so I'm okay with that. But there was wrapped up, hidden in the spinach. I don't think he did it on purpose. Um, if he did, he won't ever do it again because of my reaction. I didn't see it and I bit into it and I had just the most, like my body was like, no, like just a horrible visceral reaction. I literally had to keep myself from vomiting my food all over the table because of this offending little bit of pepper of bell pepper that was somewhere mixed in accidentally overlooked in my spinach and it just it was horrible i remember feeling terrible because there was just this just this like bleh, like sense of like i can't handle this right now and that's how these characters feel in these moments right with the with the with the darkness with the wallpaper with the amounting fear of you know this this ritual that has been passed down for generation that generation upon generation that has no real like other villages have proven that there it's not necessary necessary it's not necessitated anymore but they're still doing it. And it's just like this suffocating feeling of impending doom that we have all experienced for whatever reason, at whatever point in our life. And I love that short stories can capture that because you can do that in longer form stories, but it, it usually has to build. It'll, it'll take time to build. But short stories, you do that within a few pages or within a few sentences. And it's just chef's kiss. Like it's just beautiful. And something that I aspire to do. I love writing short stories. Um, but anyway, I think I've talked enough about this and um, I gotta go get my kid uh, from school. But I really hope that you um, have enjoyed this and that, you know, if you haven't read any of these or maybe if you have, but you don't remember them very well or you thought of something different or you saw it a different way and you wanna let me know about it, go for it. Um, you can email me at geotalkspodcast <clears throat> at gmail. Um, you can email me also or message me on my Instagram at geowritestories. Um, and yeah, like this is, I'm really excited about this. And I want to continue doing this as a series, but I hope you enjoyed my, my just, you know, thought vomit on this. And um, yeah, I hope you all have a great weekend or a great week or great midweek whenever it is you hear this i hope you have a fantastic day you have the day you deserve and more and yeah thanks for being here thanks for your support and um yeah i'll see y'all next time i'll talk to y'all later thanks for being here <laughs>